That's all right. All right. You know, when I get to teach this group, it's different than a lot of groups that you get to teach. This is more, you all are more seasoned and, and more knowledgeable of the word. And, 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 and we've all been through some things. We've all been through some battles. Uh, we've been through uh, a lot of challenges. It just happens in a, in a Christian's life. Um, Are you saying you're the youngest one in this group? Let me look. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. Well, and of course, of course, Tammy is much younger than me. But, uh, but you know, we've been through we've been through a lot of things. But the reality is, we're not finished. We still have much to fight for. I mean, we have we've been through battles. We've, we've waged, waged battle in the Lord and we've seen God do some fabulous things, but it's not over until it's over. I mean, when we stand before Jesus and he says, well done, then we're, then we're done and not until then. And so there are battles to fight. There are still, still things that, that we will face. I mean, we have children and grandchildren to fight for. We have a city to fight for. We have uh, nations to fight for that God has called us to. So tonight I'm going to talk a little bit, uh, begin talking a little bit about fighting this fight of faith. And you probably already know these things, but we're going to do some study just, just to look at some things. You know, when you, when you start fighting fights of faith and you start fighting for God and you start fighting for your family, you start fighting for uh, uh, just just the things in the spirit, for your health, for all those things that we fight for. Uh, it's kind of exciting to be on the front lines in the battle zone. Now, not everybody would agree with me, but I think it's pretty exciting to be out there where God has called you, doing the things. I mean, you know, we, we got back from Columbia and, and one of the first questions somebody asked me was, well, were you ever scared while you were there? And I'm like, no, never really thought about being scared while I was there. Uh, you know, uh, I would rather be in the center of the will of, it, of the will of God than in Columbia than out of the will of God in Lubbock, to tell you the truth. So that because God is going to always be with us. But but we, it's exciting to be there. And you know, when you're when you're on the front lines, the, they can be dangerous places spiritually speaking unless you're properly prepared and armed. To face the enemy you're getting ready to face. I know this. Joyce Meyer always says it this way. Whenever you reach a new level in God, she says, new level, new devil. And so there's still something else to fight. There's still something else to face. There will never be a time in our lives that we won't have to walk by faith. That we won't have to fight the fight of faith. And I know we get to this point in our lives and we think, oh Lord, I was hoping we could rest for a while. Well, there are times of rest. There are times of great rest, and our lives should be enjoyed. Jesus said, I've come that you might have and enjoy life in abundance to the full till it overflows. But part of that abundant life, that overflowing life, is, is whipping the devil along the way. It is, is, is getting, going on with God. I find that over the years, and we've, we've, most of us have been Christians for a long time, we find that many people get wounded in the battles. And the sad part about it is, is that they give up. They give up on the Lord. They give up on the Lord's call in their lives. And, and to me, that's a sad thing because Tammy and I can, we, we, we sometimes talk about people that we got spirit filled with back in, in, the, in the 70s. And, and we, we, 
we realize they're no longer even walking with God. Many of them aren't married anymore. They've given up totally on it. And at the time, they were as aggressively in love with Jesus as we were. And, and they don't walk with God anymore. I'm reminded of the scripture in First Timothy chapter 1. This is in verse 18. The apostle says this to, to, to Pastor Timothy. He said, This charge I commit unto thee, son Timothy, according to the prophecies which went before thee, that thou by them mightest war a good warfare. He's talking about a fight here. He says, Holding faith and a good conscience, which some, having put away concerning faith, have made shipwreck. Isn't that something? He, he's, saying, he's saying, when we overcome things, when we fight this fight, the first thing we've got to do is we've got to hold faith. Holding faith. Uh, the, the word hold means to possess. We've got to hold, possess our faith that comes from the word. When trouble comes, when the attack of the enemy comes, it is to get us to turn loose of our faith. To just get us to give up, to get us to quit. And that's what the devil wants. He says you've got to hold that and you've got to hold a good conscience. This, this, this word good conscience or phrase good conscience in the Greek talks about a good perception or a good vision. We have to be able to see who we are, but more than that, who God is. And what he's called us to do. Have a clear vision of what he's saying to us. Otherwise, he said we wind up being shipwrecked in our faith. Shipwrecked. I mean, when the ship crashes, people drown. You lose the stuff. Today, we'd probably call it a train wreck. You know, when faith just runs off the rails. I know this, that in our lives today, because of what we have to fight for, our children our grandchildren, our city, our nation, we need to be people who aren't letting go of faith. You know, I think about uh, King, can't remember his name in the Old Testament, and the prophet said, you know what, it's going to be okay in your lifetime, but because of all this, your children are going to be the ones who are taken captive. He said, well, okay, as long as it's not in my lifetime. Listen, I don't want that. I want my children and my grandchildren to walk with God. I want, I want them to have the benefits in the Lord that we do. And so it takes courage for us to stay in the battle. I mean, many Christians, they get saved and they, they, they fail to engage the enemy because it seems too hard. You know, it's like they've been promised sometimes that, oh, if you just get saved, everything will be all right. You know what? Everything will be all right. But along the way, sometimes it doesn't seem like it's all right. Because it's a fight of faith. I'm gonna, uh, it's really going to be good news as we go along, I, I think, I hope. <laughs> but, but to fail to fight is to surrender and become a prisoner of war. I mean, we have a choice. We can either fight or we can become a slave. See, Jesus died for our liberty. He died for it. And we're to be free from the devil, from sin, from the penalty of sin, from the curse and all that includes. But we have to fight for it. The people who give up, they still get to go to heaven when they die. But the problem is they're forced to live their lives in the clutches of the evil of this world. There's still a fight to fight. So for us to succeed in, in what I call the battle zone or, 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 or in the fight requires fierce, determined faith. That Jesus describes when he said, And from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence, and the violent take it by force. We take it. It's a fight. Here's the good news. We win if we don't quit. 
We win. God intends for us to win. I mean, the scripture says this. It says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Listen, we're going to fight, but we've got to put on the armor. The only reason you put on the armor is so you can fight. don't hear a lot of sermons about fighting anymore. We hear a lot of sermons about, you know, God will give you a million dollars if you'll give some money or whatever. But we, don't, we, we have to fight a fight. There's something for us to do as believers. We put on the whole armor of God that we can stand against the wiles of the devil. I got curious last night looking up this word, wiles, the wiles of the devil. The Greek word is the Greek word methodos. We get the English word methods, obviously, with it. But it's actually a compound word in the Greek. It's metaodos. Meta means with. Odos means a road. It literally means a traveler on a road. Now, how does that have to do with the wiles of the devil? What it's referring to is, is, is that the devil is not taking a random road, but he's mapped out a path, mapped out a road. Our job is to be armed so that he doesn't get to go on that road that we cut his path off. He's trying to make inroads into our families. We know he's trying to make inroads into our nation. Listen, I believe we are just the people to stop him. I believe we can stop him in our families. I believe we can stop him in our nation, in our cities. I believe we are the people to do that. I mean, that word has to do with the devil. It has to do with where he's traveling and what he wants to do once he gets there. We put on the armor of God. We fight the fight. And if we'll do that, we'll stop him. I tell you, it's necessary for us to do that. In the times we live, God is looking for people just like us. Listen, the devil, I, I, sometimes I think the devil doesn't even expect us to do anything. You know, most of us, we've been Christians for a long time, and we're ready for the next group to take over. And maybe they will, maybe they won't, but our job isn't over yet. We still get to fight. Listen, I believe God's looking for us because I believe we're willing and we're courageous. We're ready to enter the battle because we don't want the devil to take it. We don't want him to get there. God's looking for people who are willing to fight this battle to the point of no return. And I think most of us have been there. We don't ever want to go back. Listen, our utter dependence is upon him for the victory. And we've got to walk and live by faith. I found over the years many people get wounded. Or, worse than that, they get tired and then they just defect. They just leave the army. They leave the faithful ones to the fighting. Don't want to keep up the fight in the midst of the massive warfare. It just seems like it's too much. Well, it's not too much. If God called us, he equips us. He empowers us. He provides for us, and we win. We, we want to fulfill his, his will in our lives. So God's looking for people just like us because he wants us to do what we're supposed to do. He's looking for warriors who will step ahead of the rest Look the enemy in the face and say, you're not going to take my kids. You're not going to take my part of the kingdom. You're not going to do that. So let's talk about the fight for just a few minutes. I'm going to read four passages of scripture. If you want to follow along, I'm going to begin in 2 Timothy. All these are going to be in 2 Timothy. Chapter 1, verse 6. 2 Timothy 1, verse 6. The apostle says, Wherefore I put thee in remembrance that thou stir up the gift of God, which is in thee by the putting on of my hands. For God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. Be not therefore ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of, the, of, of his prisoner, but be thou a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. Most people don't want to read verse 8 because they like verses 6 and 7 better. But verse 8, it says that we are to be a partaker of the afflictions of the gospel according to the power of God. 
You don't hear a lot of messages anymore about being partakers of the affliction. But there's something to it. Chapter 2, verse 3 says, Now therefore, endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. You guys have the metal to talk about hardships. We've been around a long time. We understand that it's not just all greasy grace, but that there is a fight to fight. And, and we have to be able to, we have to know what to do. Chapter 3, verse 12 says, Yea, and all that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. Nobody's jumping up and shouting amen to that passage, see? Chapter 4, verse 3 says, For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine, but after their own lust they shall heap unto themselves teachers, having itching ears. They shall turn away their ears from the truth and shall be turned into fables. But watch thou in all things, endure afflictions, do the work of an evangelist, make full proof of thy ministry. For now, for I am now ready to be offered, and the time of my departure is at hand. I've fought a good fight, I've finished my course, I've kept the faith. Now, it's interesting to me, all those passages that I just read to you are from 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy has four chapters. I read a passage from each chapter, and all of them are about fighting a fight. Let me read the first one again. I'm going to read from the Amplified. It says, And this is why I would remind you to stir up, rekindle the embers of, fan the flame of, and keep burning the gracious gift of God, the inner fire that's in you by means of the laying out of my hands, with whose with, with those of the elders of your ordination. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, of cowardice, of craven and cringing and fawning fear, but he's given us a spirit of power and love and of calm and well-balanced mind and discipline and self-control. Do not blush or be ashamed then to testify and to and for our Lord, nor of me as prisoner for his sake, but with me take your share of the suffering to which... The preaching of the gospel may expose you to do it and to do it in the power of God. So this is talking about having the courage to stay in the battle. We need to have the courage to stay. It's telling us we've been equipped to overcome timidity and cowardice. At this point in our lives, it's not the time to back up. It's not the time to back down. It says the power of, with his power, his love, and self-control, we don't have to ever be be timid about who we are in Christ. It's telling us we've got to stir up the gift of God so we don't quit and defect from the assignment God's put, put on us. We can't be ashamed of the Lord and His Word. We can't fear the persecution that may in, ensue. Man, we need, to be able, we need to be able to do what He's called us to do. The other passage in chapter 2 in the Amplified says, Take with me your share of the hardships and suffering which you're called to endure as a good first-class soldier of Jesus Christ. No soldier, when in service, gets entangled in the enterprises of civilian life. His aim is to satisfy and please the one who enlisted him. I'm telling you, this walk of faith is a fight, and we're in the army of God. I remember when I was a little kid, we used to sing that song about, I'm in the Lord's army, you know, and, and, and you know, well, I don't know, they had, we had helicopters or planes or something that we did over it. <laughs> but we're in the army of God. We're in his army. Ours is to consider the battle and not get entangled with all the other matters. Not allow the distractions of the world to take us away from winning this war. It's a fight of faith in the spirit realm. We fight in that arena. We focus on what God's called us to. 
I mean, we, we read in 3.12 that, that if we live godly in Christ Jesus, we will suffer persecution. Later on, maybe in the next two or three weeks, we're going to talk about what suffering is and what the Scripture shows it to be. And then we read it. We read from those, those in chapter 4 where Paul says his time is over. He's fought his fight. It's, it's about over. He's departing to heaven. But he's talking about being in, the, in, in this fight of faith. So we're going to look at the fight of faith. Sometimes when you fight in the fight of faith, it doesn't look like things are going to work out according to the promise. That's what it looks like sometimes. That's when we must fight and continue to fight. As I said, we will win if we do not quit. All right. So that's all introduction. Now let me say this. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how often you read the 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 the, the epistles of, of of Paul. I read them a couple of times a year, and I notice every year when I'm reading First Timothy, and then I move to Second Timothy, things really change. First Timothy is is a different book. I mean, the passages we just read were from Second Timothy. Spiritual warfare is talked about throughout the book of Second Timothy. I mean, it, it talks about it. I mean, we've never gone through what the first century saints went through, and I pray that we never have to go through some of these things. But, but this book, this book of 2 Timothy, was written by the Apostle Paul to Pastor Timothy. Timothy was the pastor of the church in Ephesus at around 66 to 67 A.D. The book of 2 Timothy contains four chapters, as I said, and each of those four chapters talks about fighting a fight of faith, talks about warfare. Okay, this is his letter, second letter to Timothy. The church in Ephesus, in Ephesus, is the largest growing church in the world at the time. Uh, historians tell us that over a hundred thousand people were a part of this fellowship of believers. You remember when Paul went back by Ephesus on his way back to Jerusalem, the pastors came out, and it was a huge group of pastors that came out and visited with Paul before he went back. They were, they were the pastors over the, there was no building large enough in Ephesus to house 100,000 people, but this church was scattered throughout the city, and there were believers everywhere in Ephesus at that time. And, and so he, he does it. We, when we read the book of 1 Timothy, I don't know if you recall what's in that, but 1 Timothy instructs Timothy regarding the organization of this rapidly growing church. If you read it, it, it Timothy, Timothy talks, uh, must have asked Paul, how do you organize it? And so Paul tells him about deacons and tells him about elders. In fact, if you've ever been around a, a deacon ordination, most of the time we read out of the book of 1 Timothy. It gives the qualifications for the deacons and for the elders. That book, tell, Paul told him how young people are supposed to act and how elderly people are supposed to behave. He told him how that they're supposed to pay the pastors and all these things they did. 1 Timothy is a book of instruction and it talks about how to organize the local church. But then, when we get to 2 Timothy, I mean, it's different in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy has a different theme and a different sound. In 2 Timothy, 1 Timothy, the church is great. It's growing. Everything is wonderful. Second Timothy, it is not great. It's not going well at all in Second Timothy. I mean, it, things are hard. And now Paul begins to instruct young Timothy how to fight the fight of faith, how to live in the battle zone. Now, we're going to look at some things historically that happened in that time frame that hopefully we will never have to face. But it, it's going to be, we, we want to see how do we walk by faith when times get tough. Things change in 2 Timothy. Timothy seems to be anxious over the declining condition. I mean, things have taken a turn for the worse. In the church of that day, in that church, there was scandal. There was defection. There were liars. There were betrayers. And, and Timothy is dealing with this stuff on a daily basis. 
I think I've been the pastor of that church. <laughs> he finds himself he, he finds himself in this combat zone, and no matter how great things are, we have to always live by faith, and we have to be vigilant regarding our enemy, the devil. We have to be aware of what's going on. Timothy's predicament sounds kind of similar to the modern church. Today, the media digs for scandal on on churches, and they'll uncover bad things. I mean, the devil's goal is to convince the lost world they cannot trust the church anymore. You watch movies, you watch sitcoms, the preachers are always depicted as evil or stupid. Okay, because they, they want the world to not see the church as a place for answers. The failures of churches is magnified in the daily news. I mean, you know what? If a politician gets in trouble, that's one thing. But if a politician calls himself a Christian and gets in trouble, it's a whole different thing. It, it changes all the way. There was and there still is a problem of defections. People there then and now, they're leaving church in droves. I remember when I got spirit-filled in the 70s, man, all you had to have was a guitar and some room on the floor. And I mean, people came from everywhere. I mean, and you know, you just had to have somebody be able to prophesy a little bit. I mean, you could draw, people my age, you could draw them from everywhere. You could just bring them in. I mean, but we've kind of left that spiritual playground of that era. And I mean, it's not the same anymore. There is a fight for souls. There's a fight for sound teaching of the Word. There's a fight for it. Yes. Because people don't, don't crowd to hear the sound teaching. Because the Bible talks about itching ears. There's a fight just to get the money to do what we're supposed to do. I mean, to go to, to Columbia, to do the things that God calls us to do. I mean, we're, we're in this war whether we like it or not. So I'm going to give you a history lesson tonight. We're going to look at that. And then next week we're going to look at the scripture in 2 Timothy. And we're going to look at how we're going to begin to fight this fight of faith. What happened to Timothy and his church was because of the rise of one of the most evil men who was ever brought to power. There was this ruler of Rome. His name was Nero Claudius Caesar Augustus Germanicus. One of the most evil men to ever walk the earth. We know him as Nero. He lived from 37 to 68 AD. He became the emperor of Rome shortly after Claudius I named him to be his successor. I mean, Claudius said, this will be my successor. And you know what? Claudius got poisoned right after that. <laughs> and all of a sudden, this 16 or 17-year-old boy named Nero became the emperor of all of Rome. Now, we don't know if it was Nero that poisoned him or his mom that poisoned him. But the rumor was out that maybe Claudius was changing his mind about who would take over. So they just took care of that, and they poisoned him at dinner one night. He became the first of, 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 ten, of, of, of ten wicked, demonized Roman rulers who hated Christians. I mean, there were nine right after Nero. During his reign and the following nine emperors after that, I mean, Christians were hunted down like wild animals and killed. I mean, with, with vicious hatred. Nero was personally responsible for the deaths of Paul and Peter. When the Holy Spirit told Paul he would stand before Caesar, it was Nero that he stood before. Wow. He was, he was actually released at one point, but then Nero was so angry at the church, at Christians, that he, had him, had him, he brought him back and had him beheaded. 
and he crucified Peter. He reigned from 54 to 68 A.D. That's exactly when 1 and 2 Timothy were written, while Nero was the emperor of Rome. Right? So, so, so this demonic control over Rome really began earlier with a, with, with a ruler by the name of Octavian. He was four emperors before Nero. I hope you don't mind me giving you this history lesson. But during Octavian's reign, the empire became very large, and the traditional religion of Rome was crumbling. And so Octavian was very religious, and so he was immersed in this pagan idolatry of the time, and so he wanted to, to, to get it back. So he rebuilt these temples of the Roman gods and, and all these things to get it back. But after he died, then Augustus became the, 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 the emperor, and he began to establish the beginnings of what was known in the Roman Empire as emperor worship. With the help of the Greeks, who believed that the reigning emperor was the incarnation of the supernatural and worthy of Godhead in worship, the empire was convinced to deify Augustus to build altars and shrines to Augustus. Augustus became God. Augustus was the first emperor to be called Lord. Lord. When the apostle John on the Isle of Patmos said, I was in the spirit on the Lord's day, he wasn't talking about Sunday. He was talking about the annual celebration where they, where they worshiped the Lord King. And it was on the Lord's day that the Holy Spirit, that, that Jesus came and appeared to John on the Isle of Patmos. The real Lord showed up on that day. All right? It was during this time of, of this emperor worship that a new God was created by Rome that plays this major role in history. This new is actually a goddess. Her name was Roma. R-O-M-A, Roma. Roma, the goddess of Rome. And they created Roma to unify the empire. It was so huge and it was diverse. So it was becoming divided. And I mean, they let everybody practice their religion, kind of like the United States kind of does. But, the, but it was just being divided. And so they had to come up with a way to bring it back into unity. So they create the central god of the central government. Her name was Roma. So that everyone would come. This fabricated God spirit was to be worshipped by all so that the, the empire could come into unity. There were factions, but the leaders loved the empire and they were loyal to it. So Roma became known as the Roman spirit. They developed a priesthood. They built temples. Offerings were given. I mean, this became the God to whom all good Romans paid homage. Roma became the state god. Roma was the god that became the national religion of the Roman Empire. She was said to be the god that made Rome great. To speak against Roma meant to speak against Rome itself. Without Roma, the greatness of Rome would never continue. I mean, they duped these people. To defy Roma was the ultimate anti-patriotic act. It was, patri it was political rebellion. Romans couldn't understand why anyone would not worship the state god. They couldn't understand how you could be a good Roman and not worship Mother Roma. Obviously, that became a deadly situation for Christians. So, Lord Augustus, as he called himself, I mean, he, he called him Lord. He made himself the object of worship. And people began seeing Augustus as the embodiment of this Roma god. So, Augustus and Roma were the same. All of that occurred during the incarnation of Jesus. They began to deify Augustus Caesar 
as God when the real thing was already in the world, when Jesus was there. By the time Nero came to power, the emperor and Roma were the same. And people, I mean, they, they just, they worshipped the emperor, they worshipped Roma. To deny the emperor or Roma was considered treason in the highest degree. All right, well, that put the church in a bad situation because now, you, you know, you got, you got all this stuff going out. The vicious persecution of the church began because, because the believers worshipped a different God. And so they were hauled into public places. They were forced to stand under the Roman seal and bow the knee to Roma. And the emperor, uh, in, in worship, and they had to worship them both, and, and then they had to deny Jesus. If they refused, they were killed on the spot. They were called political rebels. So Nero, here he was. He finally became the emperor of Rome. He was considered a god by the people, but he still had to go through the Roman Senate to govern. The Senate wasn't as, 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 as committed to Nero as the people were, but he was brutal. He was consumed with power. Not only did he kill his uncle to become the emperor, he executed family members, he assassinated other senators. I mean, he wanted, he wanted to be all in all in Rome. And so he wanted to tear down the city. He wanted to build a statue of himself as the sun god with his face in the middle of the sun god's face. He wanted to put that in the middle of the city. He wanted to tear everything down and build everything around this giant statue of himself. Because he, now, he, he was convinced that he was God and that they needed to worship him and he needed to be the center of everything. Well, the Senate said no. <laughs> They said, no, we're not, doing that. we're not going to tear down our city. So it made him so mad. And you know this part of the story. He sent his servants into the city with torches, and they began to burn it down. I mean, they burned Rome. I mean, once it was burned, I mean, there were some, there were some uh, reports that, that the city burned for over a month. I mean, I mean, Nero wanted to rebuild this city for himself, but he couldn't admit that he burned it down. So he had to find somebody else to blame. Okay, so he was actually on the way to the Senate to be tried, convicted, and executed when he devised this plan. He decided he was going to blame the Christians. And here's why. In, Rome, in the Roman mind, Christians were atheists. Isn't that something? When the truth becomes a lie, and the lie becomes the truth. They were considered atheists. Christians held illegal private meetings because meetings had to be approved by the emperor. Since Nero's the emperor, he never approved them. Okay, so their meetings were illegal. The Christians spoke of another king and another kingdom. In Nero's mind, in most Romans' mind, Christians were planning to overthrow the Roman Empire and to establish a new king. Christians held what were called love feasts. You know what that was. They, they enjoyed fellowship, meal with one another, and, and, and with other saints in and, and the love of Jesus. Well, the Romans thought that it was an orgy of some kind. And they thought that the Christians were highly immoral and perverted. The Christians celebrated communion, the body and the blood of the Lord. The Romans thought they were cannibals, or at least accused them of that. The Christians stood on street corners, preached Jesus and the coming judgment, and mentioned fire and brimstone. Sure enough, Fire came. When Rome burned, the people remembered the Christians preaching about fire, and then Nero blamed them for the fire. I mean, it was the perfect alibi. They were the most hated people of all in the Roman Empire. That's when things began to change in Timothy's church. 
Nero was so cruel. I mean, he persecuted the church with a vengeance. I mean, they were hunted, they were tried, they were sentenced. I mean, and the sentence was always this predetermined uh, uh, punishment of death. And Nero was the cruelest and had the cruelest imaginable tortures. He built huge griddles and he fried them alive. I don't want to, I mean, there are lots of things I can go into. I mean, he, he did terrible things. And you know this, Christians were forced to fight the gladiators. They often would slay little animals and put the skins on the Christians and throw them into the lion's den just just so they would be eaten alive. I mean, it, it, well, the goal, of course, was to scare people away from being Christians. I mean, the devil still does the same thing. He wanted to make them afraid. It, it, I mean, Nero, in, in, the, in his garden, he removed all the trees out of the garden. And he installed these huge stakes. And then he had a big tar pit installed. The Christians were dipped in the tar, tied to the stakes, and they were lit on fire. Because Nero wanted to hear them scream and cry in pain. But history tells us instead of hearing their screams and moans, he heard them quoting the book of Psalms. He heard them sing chants to one another. He heard them sing in tongues and give praise to the Lord Jesus. It drove him crazy. Literally drove him crazy. And he eventually committed suicide. He was the one who wound up screaming, I guess. Well, that's what happened in Timothy's day. That's why Paul was teaching him how to fight in the battle zone. He was telling him how to do that. I mean, we have to... I believe we will, we will never go through that. But we have to fight a fight so that our children don't. So that our grandchildren don't. We can't be afraid. We have to fight. We have to decide. We're going to fight in the spirit realm for our families, for our nation. Our nation. The book of 2 Timothy has a great wealth of information on how to fight this fight. So that's what we're going to look at for the next few weeks. Listen, we know there's a fight, but this is what we know. There's a great victory to win. Let me close with good news. 1 John 5, 4. For whosoever is born of God overcometh the world. And this is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. We win if we hold on to faith. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 says, Now thanks be unto God, which always causes us to triumph in Christ. If we stay with him, we win. I believe the best days are ahead of us if we stay with what God has called us to. We are the people who need to fight. We need to raise up children and grandchildren. We need to raise up people in an army so that God's glory is made manifest in our country, in our city. We need to make sure that we don't give up and coast. We need to fight the fight of faith. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, tonight I thank you for your plan of victory in our lives. For your plan of victory, Lord, in our lives, our children's lives. Lord, we don't want to ever be afraid. You haven't given us a spirit of fear. You've not given us a spirit of timidity, but of power, of love, and a sound mind. And Lord God, we're going to hold on to faith. We're going to see you win through your church. In Jesus' name, amen.